Hola, you're listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to live in the middle of a developing tourism town? Sounds great, right? Well, it doesn't come without challenges. Like most people listening, I had a steady job, lots of stress, worked my ass off so I could enjoy vacations. One day, I came to the realization that I needed to embed myself into a vacation permanently, so that's what I did. Now my home is San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. It's a small town on the Pacific coast with a population of about 15,000 people. I have a small sailboat charter business which pays the bills and leaves a bit left over to cover my habits. And even though we call it paradise, Nicaragua is still a third world country. So picture this, 36-year-old Texas guy and his two trusty Labradors are transplanted into a developing country and they're trying their hardest not to stick out like sore thumbs. These are the stories of what life is like, some good, some bad, but all entertaining. So sit back, relax, and live vicariously through me for about the next 30 or 45 minutes. And I promise you, this stuff can't be made up. About a week and a half ago, I got back from a road trip. Jamie and I caravaned with Karen and Jerry to northern Nicaragua. So the the town of Matagalpa and Esteli, or the the two towns of Matagalpa and Esteli are up north uh, as you're heading towards Honduras. But the country is kind of divided, so Managua is kind of right in the center. Then you have south and east, and then you just have north. And the east is the Caribbean coast. And the south is everything to the west of the lake, kind of like on the Pacific coast. So even though it's not accurately described by the locals, that's the, that's the setup. So anyway, so we went to northern Nicaragua. And the first night we stayed at a little place called Selva Negra, which means black forest. And it's just like a little group of cabins in the middle of a coffee farm. So we spent the night there the first night. And then we drove to Esteli, which is a little bit further north and to the west. And Esteli is the mecca of cigar factories and cigars and tobacco. Anything cigars is Esteli's where to go. 
So over the years, I've kind of made a friend at a cigar company, and I asked him, you know, is there any places that offer tours? What can you do? And he graciously hooked me up with like a liaison in SLE that set up all kinds of tours for us and booked our hotels and everything. And typically they don't allow tours, but since this guy works in the cigar industry, he pulled some strings and we got to tour two big factories, uh, Drew Estate Cigars, which is owned by an American guy, and A.J. Fernandez Cigars, which is owned by a Cuban named A.J. Fernandez, coincidentally. And I think he's like 36. And I think Jonathan Drew of Drew Estate Cigars is around the same age, maybe a little bit older, but somewhere in there. So anyway, so the first day we get in the car with this guy named Jaime, and uh, he's the liaison. He takes us out to Drew Estate's factory, and I could not believe how big of a facility this place was. 96,000 square foot warehouse. I think they have two of them where they store their tobacco. They have three years of tobacco stored up at any given time. So if something happens with a crop, you know, they can pull from the reserves. It just makes sense to have that much stock, especially when tobacco gets better as it ages. So they stockpile it all, let it age, ferment it, and then make it into cigars. And I kind of knew about how a cigar was made, but I did not realize how many technicalities there are and how many people touch a cigar from the time that the seed's planted to the time somebody smokes it is about 100 hands or 100 people. And so they took us through the factory and they showed us where they store it and where they ferment it and where they roll it and where they package it. And it's like a maze. It's huge. There's 1,900 employees there, I believe, and they, they're a little bit outside of town. Well, all the locals don't have vehicles, so they went out and bought like seven school buses just to drive around the town and pick up their employees. And it's pretty cool how the, um, the rolling part works. Well, it's all really cool, but the most fascinating part was the, the rolling part. So it takes two people sitting next to each other to complete a cigar. One person bunches it up and wraps it in what's called a binder, and then they put it in a mold, and then they press it, and then the Next person just rolls on the outside wrapper, puts a little bit of glue on it. And so they have it timed so that you can be doing two things at one time. So if one person was doing it, it would end up taking a lot longer. So it's always a guy and a girl that work together. And I thought it was pretty cool. So I asked, I said, why why do you always pair a guy and a girl? And you look up and it's a room full of a thousand people, you know, 500 pairs. And they're just rolling these things as fast as they possibly can. So I was asking why is it necessary or why do they prefer to guys and girls work together? And they said, well, when you put two girls together, they get catty and they want to fight about stuff. And when you put two guys together, they get all machismo. They want to outdo each other and they end up arguing about other stuff. So he said, we feel like it's best to put a guy and a girl. And he said that the pro- productivity is way higher. Everyone's happier. It just works out better. And all the cigar factories that we saw were the same way. And I think it may take a little bit of a stronger hand to bunch it up and a little bit more finesse to roll it. So naturally that would make sense. Another thing we learned that most people don't realize is that you may have a factory and they have their own brand or their own name of factory, but they produce cigars for a whole bunch of other people. And then they private label them on behalf of those people. So one of the biggest ones that we saw, uh, AJ Fernandez, I think that they put out like, I don't know, 96,000 cigars a day or something. Uh, but he's, they've only have four different cigars that are their cigars. The rest of them, they're making for other people. And so it's a pretty, um, it's a, I guess it's a well-known thing in the industry, but I didn't realize how big it really was that people make more money off making cigars for other people than they do themselves. 
So we got to meet AJ. We were walking around there, giving us a tour. And um, his uncle was this, you know, older guy. He's fresh from Cuba. They had been in the cigar industry their whole lives. And so his uncle, the Cuban guy, is showing us around. And he's explaining to us, you know, about the tobacco fermentation, where it's all stored, and the supply chain of how the tobacco comes in. But AJ Fernandez, they grow majority of their own tobacco. He's bought a bunch of farms, and they they manage it from seed all the way to um, cigar production. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But going back to the story about AJ Fernandez, we were talking to his uncle, his, and these guys that walk around these cigar factories and that work there have a lit cigar in their mouth everywhere they go the entire day. It's so funny. I never thought that that many people would be smoking cigars working in a cigar factory. But they said that uh, a lot of the rollers like to smoke one every now and then just to see how they're doing and how they taste and how they burn. So anyway, going back to my story again, we were talking to AJ's uncle. AJ walks up, shakes our hand, and he, I don't know, about a 36-year-old Cuban guy that can barely speak English little tiny bit and he was really you know smiley and shook our hands but he you know he took his uncle away from us and said we've got some you know some business or whatever he can't be showing around these tourists so he ran him off but um we ended up running into aj again later when we were driving around at one of his farms where they grow tobacco and he pulls up in this brand new hilux which is you've heard me talk about him toyota's flagship truck down here he pulls up and his his daughter's in the back seat and he's got someone riding shotgun with him and she rolls down the window and starts talking to us in perfect english and i hear aj say to her keep talking to them in english but you know he's saying it in spanish and so she looks around there's like four of us standing there you know kind of talking to her and she goes this whole farm is all me and my dad's and just pointed like 360 degrees and she was right it was this gigantic plantation of tobacco that she is the heiress to and it's a cool story. They all came from Cuba, had nothing, you know, didn't have two pennies rubbed together. But they'd been growing tobacco, you know, for generations. And he saw the opportunity in Nicaragua. So he moved over here when he was 25, started a cigar company, and it's just taken off like wildfire. He's, he's done it right. He's well-respected. Uh, people fear him and love him at the same time. They say he's a firm guy, but he's really fair. One of the things that we got to see when we were out at the farms were these gigantic barns that they call drying barns. And you typically get about two crops of tobacco per growing season. But before you can do anything with them, you take them up when they're fresh and green and you hang them up in these barns and they dry them out and get the moisture out at the right level. And they, they got to do that before they bundle it all up because if they bundle it all up, I think it'll just start fermenting instantly and kind of like composting on itself. So let it dry, then bundle it up. So, these huge barns, I, I think they're probably about the size of a football field. 100 by 50 yards is what I was guessing. And they're stacked. Um, you know, each tobacco plant is about a foot and a half tall. Where the, where the leaves, once the leaves hang down, are about, you know, 16 to 18 inches. So the ceilings in these barns were probably 20 feet, maybe 18. And so from the ground to the ceiling... Every 16 to 18 inches was another rod with tobacco hanging down. So the entire barn was essentially full of tobacco. And there was about seven barns on this one farm that we saw. And he said there's like, AJ has four or five other farms with the same number of barns at each one. It's more tobacco than you can process. And I know describing it doesn't do anywhere near the justice. But when you walk in there, 
it's so intense that it like burns your nose and your throat just the ammonia that's that the plant's given off and the humidity is a real important thing inside these gigantic barns and you would think that they'd have some big fancy controlled humidity system that manages it but it doesn't they have big windows that completely open or completely close or everywhere in between and they also have places where they burn fires so if they need more humidity you know they will um open the windows and i think they'll even wet the floor with water if they need less they'll build a fire to suck up the humidity so it's not scientific there's a lot of art that goes into it and everyone has their own different formula which i guess is cool it sets it sets people apart I could go on and on and on about the cigar tours, but I'm not going to do it. So that's it. If you want to know more, just write me or email me or I'll send you something. But, oh, yeah, wait, one more thing. So I learned, well, I did some simple math and figured out that those two factories are about the same size. But at any given time, between tobacco reserves and completed cigars, they've got about $40 million of inventory on hand. And that just blew my mind that 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 much tobacco they're sending out one container load of cigars a week that's crazy so we did about two days worth of cigar stuff and on the third day we went to this canyon called somoto canyon s-o-m-o-t-o and it's just near the honduran border on the nicaraguan side and it's from what i understand it's just a river that's cut through a mountain and formed a canyon and there's different treks that you can do. You can hike down to it at certain points, and you can swim through it. In some places, you have to take a boat. And then other points, you're just crossing it back and forth. And so the four of us, me, Jamie, Jerry, and Karen, decided to go on a trek. And I had Bentley and Bronco with me. And there was a three-hour or five-hour. So I opted for the three-hour, and then everyone else was like, yeah, that's fine. And I had a feeling that it was going to take longer than three hours. And it did. It took about four and a half and the plan was to walk from where we were parked through a couple little Nika neighborhoods out in the country. This is way out in the boonies. And then we'd make our way to the canyon, and then we would go walk straight down through the middle of it. At some point, we'd be walking on rocks, and some points we'd be swimming. And so that's what we did for four and a half hours. <laughs> it was fun, but it was definitely tiring. The, the river was flowing at a decent rate, not too fast, but whenever there was rocks, it'd get kind of kind of fast, and you have to lean over on something, and every rock that you stood on is like a ice-covered bowling ball. And there was a couple points where you're just swimming, and you can't even touch the bottom. You have no idea how deep it is. And on both sides of you, there's sheer cliffs that go up maybe 40 or 50 feet on each side, and there's, so there's nowhere to get out. And I was thinking, man, if you got hurt or something down here, you'd be in a bind. You'd have to go up or down river. We got to one spot where we all kind of climbed down. It was a rock that everyone was resting on. On the back side of the rock, uh, people were jumping off of it into a, a pool, like a deep part of the, the river. And I wasn't going to do it because I had the dogs with me. But Jerry uh, walked up to the edge and looked over it. And I go, you going to jump? Thinking... Nah, there's no way he's going to jump. Just totally messing with him. And he goes, yeah. And he turned around and just jumped off. It was probably 30-foot drop. And he screamed, Geronimo. Psh, hit the water. He come right up. No problem. Just swimming along. <laughs> he, uh, 
he really kicked ass on that trip. I mean, Jerry's 65 years old, and he did that thing like he was 20. I mean, there was a couple of points where I was thinking to myself, man, I would be mad. He, he showed up with flip-flops, didn't even have tennis shoes on. After about halfway down the river, the guide saw him struggling with his flip-flops, and he swapped out his Crocs for him. But, uh, yeah, man, he kept up and kicked ass, both he and Karen. I mean, it was uh, it was pretty sweet. I hope I can do that when I'm their age. And to top it off, after the, the long trek through the canyon, we get back to the hotel, and every night we would typically sit out there. I would smoke a cigar. Everyone else would smoke cigarettes, and I would, um, you know, have a couple drinks. And so typically it was me and Jerry sitting up talking. Jamie would end up going to her room, and Karen would go to bed. And so it was normally just me and Jerry sitting there talking. And I was normally the one to throw in the towel. I'd say, man, I think I got to go to bed. It would get late enough, and I just, I'd have to be the one to go. And after the trip, we're sitting up there, and it's me and Jerry, and about 1 o'clock rolls around. And I'm thinking, this son of a bitch is going to outlast me after that whole hike. And he sure enough did. I had to throw in the towel. And I said, well, Jerry, I guess you win, buddy. You win the badass award. I, I've got to go to bed. And he was like, yep, I think I am too. And we called it a night. And that's what I knew, that hey, Jerry don't come to play. He's here for real. So the next morning, we all packed up and came home. Jamie and I decided we were going to make a, quote, quick stop, end quote, through Managua, which didn't happen. We got lost trying to find our way to Price Mart, and then we got lost after Price Mart. And I came to a realization when I was in Price Mart. It was so crowded. It was like a Saturday afternoon. It was just packed full of people. And the Latin American culture is just different about their personal space. And by different, I mean there is no such thing as personal space. And they don't mind it. They will crowd up in a bus. They'll ride six deep in a cab of a single cab pickup. They do not care. So when you're in Price Mart and you're trying to navigate with a gigantic buggy full of frozen meat around the store... People don't feel the need to work around each other. And I guess just it's just the way it is because they drive the same way. Like if they need to stop in the middle of the road to get out and check a tire, they'll do that. And so I was trying to navigate my way through Price Mart with a buggy full of meat. And someone would be walking in front of me and they'd just stop and start texting. And there's nowhere to go. The aisles were like super narrow or there's someone on either side. And my blood was just boiling and so I finally gave up. I couldn't do it. And I just grabbed a couple of the essentials, went through the line, and got out of there as fast as I could. But it proved to me that they that's just how they are. It's not just how they drive. It's not just how they ride a bus. That's just how they are. They, don't, they do not need personal space. It's, it's frustrating for us because we're the ones that need it. And so we can't get it because they don't operate the same way. So we finally get loaded back up in the vehicle, and we head out, ready to get home. And we get lost to Managua again. And then we think we're going the right way, and then we don't recognize it. And we go back the wrong way, and we'd make a wrong turn. And we'd stop and ask somebody, and then give us the other way. And Jamie's just happy as a lark, and I'm, and I'm my heart's racing, and my head's pounding. Veins are sticking out in my neck. I'm slamming on the brakes. I'm flooring it. And I finally said, we've got to get out of here. I can't, I cannot just guess anymore. We've got to figure something out. So what do we do? 
we turn on the compass on the iPhone. I said, all we need to do is go south and west, and we will get to a road that takes us to San Juan del Sur. And so that's what we did. And once we broke out the compass, we got out of Managua and got going the right way. And I think 10 minutes, maybe even a little less. So the moral of the story is don't ever forget how to use a compass. So that was pretty much the highlights of our trip. Uh, The most impressive thing about being up there is the weather. In um, Esteli, it's about highs in the low to mid-80s and lows in the mid to upper 60s. So it's perfect. You can sit outside with a long sleeve t-shirt on and shorts, and you can sleep without having to be hot or needing a fan, and you're outside during the day, you're not sweating your ass off. So it was pretty cool to be up there and experience the weather. Everything's just a little greener. Uh, It's a more agriculturally based economy. So there's a bunch of farmers and they, there's money up there, man. You can just tell by driving around SLE how much money that place has. There's a a new car dealership there, which I think is the, I'm just guessing, but maybe the only other city in Nicaragua besides Managua that has a brand new car dealership. And that's because there's so much tobacco money and uh, I think they do a lot of cattle farming too. I'm going to shift gears a little bit now and I'm going to talk about what we here in San Juan call benders. And so you may have heard in the past of a bender as referred to a person who's on like a drug binge for an extended amount of time. Well, that's not exactly what we call a bender. We kind of, but we, it just in terms of alcohol or partying. And so whenever you have people in town or your friends have people in town, you end up accidentally being on a bender because when you live here, partying is not that big of a deal. You can do it anytime. But when you don't live here, you come here for vacation and you end up partying. And so whenever people have friends that come visit, all they want to do is party. And it's always fun. It's never sucky. But when they leave, you're ready. You're ready for them to go. And so my friend Lindsay has had some friends in town for about, I think, seven or eight days. And for the last four days, it was nothing but drinking. And I'm not proud to admit it. I wouldn't want my grandmothers to hear it, but my grandfather might appreciate it. And um, so, yeah, so they're now gone. I'm eating salad and drinking water, and that's it. Hanging out at my house, probably vampire style for a couple days just to let my body relax. I say all that, but it was realistically four nights in a row of having drinks for four or five hours per night. One day, I will admit, was 14 hours of hanging out and drinking. It started at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and ended at 4 o'clock in the morning. At one point, we ended up at the like the open late beer store at midnight to get some more beer. And so I remember thinking, man, we should get a lot because if we don't, then we may run out and these beers will get drunk eventually. So we put 24 beers up on the counter, just all singles out of the cooler. And they're counting them and I'm counting them and like 24, 24. And so we were like, we should get six more. <laughs> so we got six more. So we bought 30 beer at midnight. And at 4 a.m., they were gone. And there was four of us going at them. So I don't even want to do the math. But it was, it was, was too many. By far, it was too many. I'm not going to name any names. But the person that drove my truck to the store 
and then drove my truck home from the store with me in it, obviously. The next morning, thought I had a white truck. Uh, my truck is black. So that's a bender. If you ever hear me say that I came off a bender, that's what I'm talking about. And really, they, the really bad ones only happen a couple times a year. This was one of them, for sure. I'm, I'm going to stay far away, far, far away for a long time. So yesterday, I went sailing with one of Lindsay's friends that wanted to go sailing. So we joined a trip. And there were some other people on the boat. It was a group of guys that were from London. One of them had moved to Texas. I think they were probably college buddies. And there was a group of teachers that were middle-aged, uh, forty, early 40s, something like that. And so the teachers were from South Carolina, and they kept explaining to the boys from London that you know people in the South can way outdrink British people. And so these guys were challenging. One in particular was challenging these ladies. And she had been doing, she would do like a shot of rum and chase it with Diet Coke. And I saw her do about four or five of those before this boy even started popping off to her. And it was all in good fun. You know, they were joking with each other. And so she was like, listen, I can drink you under the table. He's like, no, you can't. I'm from, I'm from bloody London or whatever. And so I, I said, hey, I said, I got, I got my money on her. I said, I'll bet 20 bucks that she can drink here on the table. He's like, let's go, let's do it. And so they lined up shots on the boat and they're doing just going shot for shot. And so they finally like, okay, let's just stop for a while. Well, the next thing that I saw was his buddies dragging him from the front of the boat to the back of the boat and trying to get him down inside the cabins. And I was like, whoa, 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 where are you going? No, 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 he's not, he can't go in there. He's going to throw up all over the place. And they're like, no, he's, he's going to be fine. He needs to go to the bathroom. I said, if he needs to throw up, he needs to throw up over the edge. He's like, no, mate, I've got to pee. I was like, okay, go. So he went down there. He comes back and just collapses in the doorway from the inside to the outside of the boat. So I go and get his buddies. I'm like, look, you guys need to take care of him. You know, and, and before we started the drinking contest, I said, I want each of you to name someone that's going to take care of you. And that person needs to agree to it because I'm not doing it. And we're going to keep it safe if you guys pass out. And so they each did. And I was like, okay, they seemed like they had responsible friends. And, and this guy did like his friends were taking care of him and they were apologizing. I said, that's fine guys. You knew the deal. And so he's your baby. So anyway, so this guy is just dead weight meat, like a sack of meat. And he's not a big guy. He's, he's fairly little guy. So he's probably five, four, one fifty, maybe one forty. And so they were just carrying him on the boat. Like he'd kind of get in the way of this shuffle him and move him. And at one point we get back to the Harbor and we're hooking back up on the anchor and I said, and I instituted a new policy. Uh, whenever I'm on the boat, if somebody, I'm going I'm to announce this when I board the boat so that there's no unknown. So the new policy is if you get blackout drunk to where you cannot respond to someone talking to you, you get a flip-flop smacked across your rib cage. This is guys only, the only guys. Now, I'm not worried about girls, but you get a, a flip-flop smacked across your rib cage. So he was lying there and they were talking to him, trying to get him up and he wasn't cooperating and just, you know, just kind of like shrugging him off and couldn't speak. And so I, I just told him that was a policy, even though it was the first time I ever did it. I said, Hey, these guys are going to get smacked in the ribs. He said, go for it, man. Let me video it. So they get out their video camera and I grabbed a flip flop and I like touch it to his rib cage. And I'm kind of like rubbing it real lightly, like in a circular motion right on his rib cage. And I go one, two, three. And I unleashed the fury on that man's rib cage with that flip flop. It left a gigantic footprint right on his side. And that woke him up. It got him going. And so 
It wasn't enough to get him off the boat. We still had to literally carry him off the boat onto the water taxi, throw him in the back of a truck, drive him to his hotel, and put him in his bed. And he was scheduled to fly out in about four hours. He's going to be taking a taxi to Managua in two hours and then fly out two hours from that and then be at work the next morning at 6 a.m. So right now, he should be sitting at work working. I haven't. I don't know the guy. I'm going to try to see if I can find him. But that's um, that's going to be impressive if that man's at work right now. And that's the new policy. You get blackout drunk, you get a flip-flop to your rib cage. If you're listening to this and you're not my mom, email me and I will send you an Amazon.com gift card. All right. I think that's all the data for today. I'm going to do the dog story of the day and then call it good. So I used to be in the concrete business. And when you're in the concrete business, you have to start really early in the morning sometimes. When it's really hot outside, you have to start early in the morning so the concrete doesn't set up. And by the time the sun comes up, everything's done and the concrete can dry throughout the day. So one time specifically, I know that I got up at 1 a.m., went to bed at probably 11 because I cannot go to bed early to save my life. So I probably got two hours of sleep. I know I went to be- I know I got up at one, probably went to bed at 11. So anyway, been out pouring concrete all day long, I'll, you know, one o'clock in the morning. I probably got home at four or five in the afternoon out there in the sun. If it was that early, it was in the summertime. So I come home, I do the typical deal, you know, play with the dogs, do some stuff, tinker around the house. And then I would go in watch some TV and go sit and smoke a cigar and then go to bed. And so I let the dogs out normally one last time right before I go to bed. And I don't know how I was still up, but I was still up at like 1 a.m. So I'd been up 24 hours and I let them out and I look over near the shop, which is about 150 yards away from my house. I look up and there was a light shining down on a concrete pad in front of the shop and I saw a little animal in there. And about the same time that I saw that animal, Bentley looked up and saw the animal and she put it in high drive after that little animal. The little animal didn't run. It just stayed there. And as she approached the little animal, the little animal raised its tail and sprayed skunk all over Bentley, all over her face, all over her collar, all over her entire body. And then she ran away, rolling and sniffling on the ground. And the little skunk dropped his tail and just trotted away. It was the most badass skunk I've ever seen. But now I'm left with a skunky dog. So, man, I was mad as a hornet. You know, because when they get sprayed by skunk, you can't let it sit. Because if you do, it'll just get worse. And it'll be hard to get out. So... Since this wasn't my first rodeo of dealing with a skunked dog, I knew that I needed hydrogen peroxide, baking soda, and Dawn, none of which I had at the house. It's 1 a.m. I've been up for 24 hours. I've got a skunk, smelly dog. I know the ingredients to fix it. So I sat there and debated for a second. And I was like, well, I got three options. I can either go now and buy this stuff. Or I can go tomorrow and buy this stuff, or I can just shave her. <laughs> and I was like, well, if I just shave her, that'd probably be the easiest thing for me. It would suck for her, but she'd probably never remember it. But I didn't do it. I went to the Walgreens at 1 a.m. to get the ingredients, and Walgreens was closed. 
I thought, well, I thought Walgreens is open 24 hours. Now I know. So I had to go to Walmart, which is about another 10 minutes away. Now I'm 15 minutes away from home. And you, you can't walk into Walmart without spending an hour. You just don't know where anything is. And there's so much of everything. And no one else does, even the people who work there. So once I located the products, I got home, I washed the dog, threw the collar away. I think it was probably 2.30, 2.45. And she still had to sleep outside because I didn't trust that it would be all the way out. And it pretty much was. I, I've got that mixture down to where one rinse or, or one scrub, one rinse, another scrub, another rinse, and that's pretty much it. And you don't have to let it dry in between. So anyway, that was the worst skunk dog story that I have. Miserable. Absolute misery. Just cussing, kicking, fighting the whole way. All right, that's going to wrap up today's show. Thanks for tuning in. Life in Paradise podcast. Nika Sale and Surf at gmail.com and our website www.nikasaleandsurf.com. Also, if anybody has any questions or ideas for podcasts, I'd love to hear them. My brain is starting to get racked trying to think about stuff to talk about. So if you have any questions about anything at any time, anywhere, just email me. I'll give you credit. Thanks again for listening. Keep it tranquilo. Yeah, the spotlight shines upon you. And how could anybody deny you? I came here with a love. Feel so much lighter now. I met you, and honey, you should know that I could never. I think you